We had all of our events around the country virtual. We had a virtual audience. We had our speakers virtual, some of them pre-recorded. And while we lost some of the in-person um, you know, opportunities, what you gained was a much larger audience. You know, so many people were able to tune in. And I think that there's a lesson in that for our infrastructure that, you know, as we move virtual, more people are able to participate in things that they weren't able to do before. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Optimistic Outlook. I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. Today, my guest is Zach Schaefer. He's the CEO and co-founder of United for Infrastructure. And I've known Zach for quite some time. Siemens has been participating in United for Infrastructure and Infrastructure Week and hoping to help Zach really galvanize support around the transformation of America's infrastructure. When I last spoke to Zach, we were talking about infrastructure and the potential for infrastructure, the the true purpose of infrastructure. And we were trying to answer the question, how do we not just rebuild, but actually reinvent and build for the future? What we're going to do today is really dig into how Zach and his team tackled that question. Listen in. There's a lot to be optimistic about in this episode. Zach Schaefer, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on staging another successful United for Infrastructure Week. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be with you again and it was great to have you uh, join us during the week. Well, you know, this was the first uh, virtual United for Infrastructure Week, and I know it was the eighth in a series. I'd love to hear your perspective on what you were able to accomplish this time that literally wasn't possible before. Sure. Um, so, yes, definitely a different year because uh, 2020 is a different kind of year. Um, and, and I won't lie, we had that panic attack in March that I know so many people had. Um, of, you know, how are we going to continue to do what we do, um, you know, in this new environment? And and the, the answer was, you can't continue to do what you've been doing. You have to figure out a way to do it differently. And, um, you know, what we did was we moved virtual. We had all of our events around the country virtual. We had a virtual audience. We had our speakers virtual, some of them pre-recorded. And, um, you know, while, while we lost some of the in-person, um, you know, opportunities, what you gained was... A, a much larger audience, you know, so many people were able to tune in who would never have been able to carve out the time, even if they were local, let alone people who would uh, have to fly into DC or to Houston or Los Angeles or Chicago. And, you know, and I think that there's a lesson in that for our infrastructure that, you know, as we move virtual, more people are able to participate in things that they weren't able to do before. Like we had a conversation uh, on uh, this past Monday, just about technology and innovation in the construction sector and how these virtual meetings that public agencies have been forced to, to hold in this environment are actually opening the doors up literally to, um, to more people to participate in the infrastructure planning process and public comment hearings and, and to engage with agencies and achieve better outcomes than they would have before simply because they had two kids at home that they couldn't get away from or they had a job that they couldn't leave to attend the meeting. So there's that silver lining. We also, during the conference, were able to get you know, so many more great speakers so much more easily because suddenly geography wasn't a factor. There were no plane tickets. There were no hotels. There were no logistics. And, uh, you know, we had just some of, I thought, the best conversations that we've ever had because, um, because we had the people there and because this virtual platform allows people to attend from wherever they are. 
Um, you know, we, we really had the right people for the conversations that we wanted to have. So those are just two of the takeaways that I had of how things were, you know, so much stronger this year, despite or even because of the new environment. Well, for those who haven't had the chance to dig into some of that content, take us inside this year's conversations. Here we are in the midst of a, a healthcare crisis, an economic crisis, a societal crisis. What were your key takeaways from the event? Sure. So it, it, obviously the, the pandemic and its economic fallout loomed large in all of the conversations, whether it's um, you know, what's the impact on jobs? What's the impact on infrastructure? What's the impact on, um, you, on you know, how we work and where we work and when we work? Um, and, and I think that those were really valuable conversations. Um, you know, certainly the conversation about funding looms large in every United for Infrastructure weekly week of advocacy events because we initially were created as a, a federally focused um, uh, program. And, and so that was definitely a conversation about what kind of support does infrastructure need from the federal government, um, and uh, particularly at the state and local level where they've already been so stretched for, for funding in so many levels, where does infrastructure continue to fit in as a priority for them amidst this pandemic, which hat and construction and infrastructure has been a bright spot in the economy throughout the pandemic because it's been something that we've been able to to keep doing and keep building safely for all, for many of those workers uh, throughout the crisis, but that is dependent, of course, on the existence of funding um, and that and that funding continuing. Um, we talked a lot about issues around inclusion and systemic inequality in our infrastructure, which I think was really important this year. It's important every year. I think it would just this year has placed all of us in a more of a mindset to address that. Um, and we had some really incredible conversations around, you know, what, you know, infrastructure is a system and that infrastructure, you know, hard codes so much into our society and that can include systemic racism, that can include systemic inequality. And what can we do to build and rebuild better out of those, um, out of what we've learned from how we built infrastructure in the past and what we can do moving forward. For instance, we had a great conversation with, um, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn on this topic, talking about his broadband, his accessible, affordable broadband for all initiative. And that, you know, if if we don't ensure that every American has access to broadband, that the, those students, those workers, those families are going to be left behind in the digital economy that we're all benefiting from right now. So, you know, I, I think that one of my big takeaways is that, you know, we yeah, I don't want it to sound like we only talk about challenges because, I mean, as the name of this podcast is, it's the optimistic outlook. Um, our infrastructure we learned in the pandemic works really well. We have really good quality infrastructure, and it's sort of like the analogy of driving down the highway. 99% of the, the, the highway you drive down is going to be smooth and high functioning and, and doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's that one one bump in the road, that one pothole or 10 potholes, whatever it is that you remember though. And, and I think that that's what we, we focused on throughout the week is, you know, what are the things that are working? What are the, the areas where our infrastructure was able to ensure that we did have continuity of service, continuity of economy, continuity of, of life and lifestyle? Um, but what are those roadblocks that we're still facing and that we maybe became even more aware of during during the pandemic or because of the conversations that we've been having around the country on systemic racism and inequality and how can we 
uh, ensure that we patch those moving forward and, and that the infrastructure we build in the future is built without those roadblocks embedded into them. Well, broadband is certainly a good example of this, making mm-hmm. sure that citizens everywhere have access to broadband. And we know that it's been deployed largely based on the market models that support it. Um, programs that are going to bring broadband to new stakeholders are key. Can you give me any other examples of things that can be done in the infrastructure world that will help improve equity and inclusion? Absolutely. Well, and on broadband, I mean, we had a great example during the week. We had uh, Mayor Andy Burke from Chattanooga, Tennessee, join us talking about their initiative where, you know, they've benefited from a Google Fiber build out in their community prior to the pandemic. During the pandemic, they've leveraged that in a partnership with um, several companies, including, I think, AT&T and their local electric utility um, and some of the surrounding counties to provide free high-speed internet to every home in Chattanooga with a, with a student on free or reduced student lunch for 10 years. You know, they are, you know, sort of really looking at what are the infrastructure we assets we have and how can we make them more equitable? How can we make them more affordable? How can we make them more accessible? So I thought that was a really, a really great idea. Um, you know, we, um, you know, heard from a group doing um, digital traffic light systems and um, intelligent uh, mobility in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is not a place that you normally think of as, you know, a, a smart city, but they're deploying these solutions to help prevent traffic deaths on busy corridors where pedestrians might run through the middle of the street or where, you know, it's, it's a rural area that floods during uh, the spring thaw season along the rivers. Um, so how can they use traffic lights to divert people away from a flooded street where most of the deaths they have in floods are people and cars who drive into those floods and, you know, can't get out of them. So how can you divert traffic away from the flooded areas before people even drive into it and have to make that decision about, do I drive into it or do I not? So I think those were just two really interesting examples we saw of how to, you know, bring whether it's, um, you know, urban communities or rural communities, um, you know, new, new solutions, you know, driven by, you know, technology and, uh, you know, sort of more 21st century thinking about planning to, to really make sure that everybody's benefiting equally from, from the opportunities that are out there. Those are great examples, and I love the ingenuity that is coming into play. Coincident with Infrastructure Week um, at Siemens, one of the things we did was conduct a poll, um, a survey, with, um, along with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And the Harris Poll was actually our survey um, administrator. During the last week of August, they simply asked mayors across the country where, what are some of their priorities with respect to infrastructure in the future. And over two-thirds of mayors put infrastructure as a top priority, both in the near term and the long term, because of its potential benefit for economic recovery and the path forward. What are you hearing as some of the projects mayors want to undertake right now? Sure. Well, a, a we hear from mayors all the time. I mean, I think, you know, so many different stakeholders in government and in the private sector have you know, a vested interest in infrastructure, but it's the mayor that gets the call when something's not working. And, um, and so it's frequently mayors on that, that leading edge of, of action on this. And, and, and one of the things I think that's important that, that we've learned over the years is that so many of the great ideas we see in infrastructure are, it, it's not um, a top-down uh, um, you know, s- a system of deploying good ideas. It's a, it's a bottom-up approach that the best ideas from the local level, the best projects become the examples that then federal and state 
agency stakeholders, developers use and replicate across the country. So, you know, we heard this week from, you know, Mayor Suarez, the mayor of Miami, Florida, about their projects they're using to um, combat sea level rise by raising roads and by uh, building flood protection. That's not just building a seawall and hoping that it holds against the next storm. It's really thinking about what are the conditions that this community is going to face over the next 30, 40, 50 years, and how do you make a coastal city truly resilient to storms and sea level rise? We, um, you know, heard from Mayor Garcetti, who's, um, you know, done so much over the last few years in Los Angeles with Measure M and with um, a number of initiatives on transit and, you know, not just um, renewing the transit system, but, um, you know, we were talking about equity, making sure that whatever transit systems they're building are solving problems of inequality where a transit line might have skipped a historically um, black or brown neighborhood, um, that they're getting out to the fringes of the suburbs where they're, you know, Los Angeles is famous for its traffic. Um, You know, if we could put, you know, even a a fraction of the vehicles that are driving into the city and put those passengers into um, a public transit system, you know, would have so many benefits for not just the region's, you know, equity, but for, for the region's air quality, for its climate, for, um, you know, for the quality of life of all the people in the city, including those who don't choose to ride transit. Um, so we heard from, uh, as I said, Mayor Andy Burke, we heard from the mayors of Dayton, Ohio, and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, um, who participated in uh, another uh, mayor's-led initiative, the Accelerator for America, and, and published a pl- what they call their playbook for infrastructure, which is uh, a set of priorities that um, that they believe if the federal government sort of took these mayoral priorities and ran with them, that it would really just enable a new generation of uh, not just infrastructure investment, but a new generation of um, economic opportunity and equality in America's cities. So mayors have definitely been a huge part of our week in the past, and, and that was definitely on stage this year. It's exciting to hear about the potential. And a lot of this depends on some investment from the federal government. And right now, uh, it's important that the uh, federal service transportation bill get reauthorized. Fill us in on where things stand on that front. Um, well, there's a, a lot of question marks around it. Um, you know, I, as much as I am the, the optimist, normally I, I am not optimistic that we'll get a transformational infrastructure bill this year. Um, you know, we're, we're only a few weeks from, uh, from an election and that makes, you know, even in a normal year, legislating huge investments um, difficult. But, but, you know, there will be a, an extension of some kind. What does give me hope is that, you know, that, that the, both the House and the Senate have passed infrastructure bills that include the the surface transportation reauthorization that look at infrastructure in new ways. It's not just doing the same thing that we've always done. It's sort of looking at sort of where do we need to go and how do we get there? So, you know, the Senate, um, the, uh, the Senate bill, which was passed through committee over a year ago now, um, through a Republican led committee, uh, included the first climate title in a surface transportation bill. So they're really looking at um, you know, issues that they haven't looked at before in a meaningful way, allocating funding to, to study and to pilot and to deploy solutions um, to, to combat that particular problem. Um, the, the House bill takes a very aggressive approach on using infrastructure as a tool to fight climate change, to promote equity, et cetera. So, you know, I think that when the, the two chambers are able to come together on a, a larger infrastructure package, um, hopefully in the new year, um, and, and we, we will, I think, have an extension to get us at least to that point. But when they are able to come together 
in the next few months, I think that what we'll see is really a next generation type of infrastructure investment from the federal government that incorporates a lot of these forward-looking challenges and the solutions to meet them. Well, recently I had uh, Seth Schultz of the Resilience Shift uh, Project on my podcast, and he reminded me of something we discussed during United for Infrastructure Week, and that was the American Society of Civil Engineers rating of our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Earning a D doesn't make anybody proud. And in past episodes, we've talked about the fact that, hey, federal funding just won't be enough to solve some of these problems. Uh, One of the critical things we need to do is mobilize some private sector investment as well. I've got to believe you talked about this a little bit uh, in in your week of meetings. So what have you been learning? We, we did. So when we had a couple events that really t- you know, talked about the traditional private investment that we hear about public-private partnerships, and there were great projects um, being done using uh, P3 tools, uh, you know, the um, John F. Kennedy Airport redevelopment is a massive uh, public-private partnership. There's a new P3, or now it's, you know, almost a year old now, but a P3 with the Army Corps of Engineers down at the Port of Galveston that is, uh, you know, helping to dredge um, to dredge that port for, for shipping. Um, one of the, the conversations that I really enjoyed was, you know, with the, the CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the uh, president of the International Union of Operating Engineers. You know, we've always been a, um, a bipartisan partnership between business and labor. And, and finding areas where they agree has always been one of the things that I've loved about this week. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about was how much um, union pension capital there is out there and how, you know, you know p- pensions are the perfect vehicle for, for infrastructure investment. I mean, they're, you know, investments, it, it's patient capital. It's looking to you know, to reap a reward over over decades. And there's a lot of it out there and it's looking for secure investments. And we need more vehicles through which um, through which pension funds and, and including our, our labor union friends can um, can deploy that capital to invest in our infrastructure. And just imagine if, you know, the I mean, and I think they do this in California already, but, you know, CalPERS and CalSTRS, the, you know, the state teacher pension funds um, are some of the biggest players in infrastructure out there. So, um, you know, I think that that's one area that demands a lot of further work and is, I think, a relatively easy solution to unlock with a little bit of policy shift. Yeah, it is exciting. And and I realize we've got work to do It's in these new ways of contracting for projects using private capital, but I'm confident we're going to get there. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the big transformations that that is happening is this whole question of high-speed rail. And mm-hmm. in the panel that I got to participate in, we also had SEPTA's general manager, Leslie Richards, and she talked about the potential for an inner city corridor in the in the Northeast and, and making use of high-speed rail. I'd be interested in your view on what could be the potential impact of that. And, and is this realistic? So, yeah, I mean, I loved Leslie's uh, response. I think it was a response to my question about, like, if, if you were Supreme Allied Commander, you know, and, you know, funding wasn't a question and, you know, there were no roadblocks, what would you do? And, and I think that was her answer was, was you know, a high-speed rail system. But she said, you know, she thought, you know, it's maybe it's a pipe dream. And I, I don't I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think that it's, it's you know, it, it's certainly a challenge. And obviously we've struggled to build out that system here in the United States that we've seen work in so many other developed nations. But, but I do think that there is the potential to get there, and it's because of the impact um, that, 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 that I think that's what really drives it. That if we're looking to decarbonize our economy, which 
which we have to, there's just no way around it. We, we have to do. Um, if we're looking to more quickly and equitably connect communities to each other, if we're looking to um, build yet both denser, but also more spread out communities where it's not just a mega city with a downtown with a ring of suburbs around it, which is really difficult to get in and out of um, in a vehicle. We need rails, whether they're the inner city rails or the intercity rails um, that connect cities. It's, it, it's what we need. So one project is the Texas Central project down in, in Texas, which is only going to connect three, three cities, a college station in the middle and um, Dallas-Fort Worth in the north and, um, and uh, Houston in the south. But it's going to create huge opportunity in that corridor and in those cities, and it's going to create really um, tremendous ease of access between those cities for people who are working, commuting, et cetera. You know, in the Northeast, you know, in the Northeast corridor, we've, you know, already got the rails and the right of ways, what it takes that here is a significant investment to upgrade that rail system to one that can accommodate the kind of high speed rail that is what we think of when we think of high speed rail, not just higher speed rail. Um, but, but I do believe that, you know, we'll get there. I mean, we, we know that more people, Right. I can't remember the exact specifics, but more people ride the Amtrak corridor in the Northeast every day than fly between any of those cities combined. You know, it is a high demand um, transportation corridor. The, the market case for it is there. We just need to, to make that investment and take that leap of faith. I mean, it's, you know, it's comical and a little bit sad to me that, you know, I, I recently went to Amsterdam back when traveling was a thing and, uh, you know, flew into to Skiffle and, you know, took an elevator down, picked up my bag, took another elevator down, got on a high speed train and I was in Belgium 30 minutes later. And, you know, 30 minutes after flying into Dulles, I wouldn't be at Union Station, let alone on a high speed rail train. Um, so, you know, it's, this is, I think, for me, it's a matter of pride. I think it's also a matter, though, of, you know, this is what our economy needs. I think that the realistic way that this gets built out, though, isn't the federal government saying we're going to create a national system of high-speed rail. It's going to be that bottom-up approach that I talked about before. It's going to be city pairs that decide to do this. So, you know, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, um, there's a line being explored in the Pacific Northwest from Portland to Seattle up to Vancouver. There's the, the Texas line. Um, and then, of course, the Northeast Corridor is sort of, I think, the holy grail of high-speed rail for, um, for so many of us. But, um, but I think that that's how it builds out. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing how this develops. You know, um, as you all talked about this, you've talked about the economic impact of infrastructure development. Uh, let's speak in terms of jobs. Was there much discussion about what kind of jobs uh, will develop in this coming phase of infrastructure? Sure. And we, we, we've heard in, you know, years past the, the traditional arguments around jobs, which which remain, which, you know, the a billion dollars in infrastructure investment uh, generates 13,000 jobs. Those jobs are good paying jobs. Um, they're family sustaining jobs, they're careers. Um, they're in the context of the pandemic, they're jobs that people are able to continue to have. Um, you know, th th these are not people who've been sent home. These are people who are either still on the job site doing great work, or they're people who are being or who are discovering new ways to work remotely, whether they're operating transit systems or water utilities um, or, uh, you know, construction engineers who are reviewing plans remotely online. Um, you know, there's so much that we've discovered in the construction sector that can be moved um, to remote work. I think that looking into the future on jobs, you know, we had a really interesting conversation, as I mentioned, um, late in the week on technology innovation in the construction sector itself. 
And one of the takeaways is that the nature of those jobs is changing and has to change. That, you know, construction, I think, was a late comer to the innovation game that um, the World Economic Forum had a, a report out a couple years ago that uh, ranked it almost at the bottom of um, the, the innovation productivity scale among, its, among other sectors of the economy. But that's changing. And part of that is, you know, a couple digital revolutions, you know, cloud computing, mobile technology, um, uh, the availability of software that leverages those those hardware tools and, and the existence of that cloud to then, you know, take what was a, a ream of um, plans for a project and put it all into an iPad or a tablet. Um, and that then, you know, the foreman of the project can walk around with that tablet, but it doesn't even stop there. It's we're getting to the point that it's every construction worker, every engineer, every planner, you know, is using those digital tools on the job site, off the job site, and even once the project is completed to sort of know exactly, like to, to see inside the concrete, literally, because they've got a digital plan that's been well-documented and marked up by the construction workers. So as they look to operate and maintain that infrastructure out into the future, that technology is enabling them to do things and see things and stop problems before they happen and save costs along the way. Now, all of those skills, all of those technologies require new skills and it requires a rethinking of, um, you know, who our construction workforce is. Um, it requires, you know, an immense new effort to bring new people into the construction workforce, the construction workforce and the operations and maintenance workforce is also aging rapidly. Um, we heard during the week about the silver wave, they call it, in transit and in, uh, in water utilities, where over the next five years, over half the workforce is expected to retire. And the pandemic may even be accelerating some of those trends for people who feel like they're at risk because of their age and they'd rather not go into the office right now. So they're just going to take a little bit of an early retirement. We need to replace those workers anyway. We need to bring new younger people into the workforce. We need to bring people from communities who don't traditionally think of infrastructure careers as their careers. And we need to upskill them with those digital skills so that they're really able to capture the promise of the technologies and the infrastructure that we're going to be building and are already building now um, that serves all of us so much better. Oh, wow. It's just fascinating to think about this. Infrastructure has got to be the one thing that we use the most and think about the least. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're just sort of without being conscious of it, moving in and around with the benefit of this infrastructure. And you've shared with us today some tantalizing ideas about how the, the future technologies could actually enhance our infrastructure. Take me forward then into the impact of this infrastructure. Cast your mind 10 years ahead and tell us what, what the U.S. will look like, what our world is going to look like with the benefit of the infrastructure of the future. Sure. Well, actually, we had a great conversation um, at our big Friday event um, about an initiative that the American Society of Civil Engineers is leading, which I think Siemens is is a contributor to, um, uh, which is the Future World Vision 2050 project. And um, it's, it's literally that. It is a tool that, that they, they're working with uh, the designer who did the, the world building and graphic design for Minority Report um, um, and a number of other Hollywood films who's decided that, you know, you know why just do this for, for movies when you can really sort of like in, do world building and envision, you know, 
the real world and have that, that world building be rooted in where we're starting from and where we actually need to go and want to go as a society. And so we had a great conversation with, um, with Rob Puentes from the Eno Center for Transportation and Jerry Buckwalter, the chief operating officer or chief strategy officer of ASCE on future world vision. And on the, it's, it's the confluence of several trends that they've identified that it's, it's new technology, um, it's demographic shifts and you know, rapid urbanization, it's uh, autonomous vehicles and, and other autonomous technologies. Um, climate change obviously is one of those mega trends. You know, there's, there's several trends that they're looking at that, and it's not just that those trends exist, it's that they're all, they're all colliding with each other in real time over the next few decades. And, you know, while we're not gonna get to, you know, all of us having a flying car in 10 years, we all need to be thinking 10, 20, 30, 50 years ahead as we design our infrastructure um, and, and imagine what our lives will be like because of those trends, because we're going to be living in denser cities, because we're going to be grappling with the impacts of climate change, because um, we know that the, the technology is out there. We want to use it, you know, to improve our lives. So, you know, I, I think that you know, technology in infrastructure is going to accelerate change. Um, I think that that will, you know, be a very good thing for for many of us and certainly for how we build infrastructure, how we operate infrastructure. I think that's also something that we have to be, you know, very cognizant of as we do it so that we ensure that technology doesn't become one of those haves and have not issues. Like when our conversations on equality and opportunity, you know, you know, just access to a car became a have or have not issue in, you know, the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and beyond, whether, you know, having access to being able to afford a vehicle, being able to afford parking it in a city, um, you know, those are fundamental issues of equality and access. We want to make sure as we move forward that when we're making these technology choices that everybody can benefit from them and everybody can use them. Well said. Well, Zach, thank you so much. This is United for Infrastructure Week, a recap in a single podcast. I've loved getting a glimpse into this world that you're helping to create. Thank you so much once again for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And thanks for, as always, participating in the week. It's just been a pleasure to work with you and the rest of the Siemens team throughout it. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.